you do a lot of work on computers. Every now and then you notice your computer just starts really running poorly and really bad. And what you got to do is you got to wipe it clean. You just got to you just got to reformat it and start all over and get it all cleaned up and fresh. And uh, sometimes in our Christian lives, we need to do the same thing. Every now and then, we just need to hit the reset button and go back to the basics, go back to the default programs that we're, God put in us when we were saved, and uh, just remember these things. So tonight, I'm going to start a two-part study on, and it's entitled, The Multiplicity of God's Will. The Multiplicity of God's Will. So let's look at Romans chapter 12 together. And I'm going to read just the first three verses, so if you'll just read along silently with me from Romans chapter 12, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove... What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bless the preaching of of your word. I pray you'd instruct us and that you'd strengthen us, and that you'd give us a zeal for for Christ. Thank you for this time. Now we ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. As God's children, our innermost innermost desire is to please him. And I believe that. I believe that in in our innermost self, all of God's children desire to please him. And this desire comes from the influence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Think back tonight to a time when you were a young child. And think back to how happy it made you as a child to please your parents, right? We can all think back to the time when when we were young and how, how happy we were when we did something that pleased our parents. And this is something that we all seek for, to please our Heavenly Father, to do those things that honors him. Uh, But how do we do this? How do we even know what it is that the Father wants us to do? Uh, How do we know the will of the Lord? During my 31 years of ministry, uh, I believe this is the most often asked question that I receive from my brothers and sisters in Christ. The question of how do I know, how can I know God's will for my life? How can I be sure, people will ask me, that this is what God wants for me? That this is what he wants me to do? How will I know when God is calling me to do something? Well, in the midst of the mysteries of God, I fear that we today as believers have clouded the will of God until it almost cannot be seen are recognized. Again, think back to when you were a child. For the most part, I knew how to please my parents. I knew, I knew the things that my father w- w- approved of and what he didn't approve of. 
And I think most of us can acknowledge that, that as children, we learned what our parents didn't want us to do, and we learned what they did want us to do. And I knew this because I had a close personal relationship with my parents. I knew what they liked, and I knew what they did not like. I knew what they expected of me. And by simply applying these principles to my behavior, I knew how to please them, how to live within their will for me, if you will. Now, if my earthly parents had enough wisdom to teach me their will, how much more is the Heavenly Father able to teach us of his will? You see... By and large, Christianity today has become so corrupted by worldly philosophy and worldly principles that often it's difficult for Christian people to understand the most basic of truths. Today, we suppose that the will of God involves some great pomp and circumstance. We expect that thunderous lightning will happen and 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 the sky will part and 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 a bright light will shine and we'll hear a voice from seven heaven that says this is my will we suppose that it will be like moses at the burning bush or like joshua outside of the city of jericho when the captain of the hosts of god appeared in his presence We suppose that there will be great thunders and earth-shattering lightning when God reveals his will to us. But I'm reminded from Scripture that while God can reveal himself in such ways, most often this is not the way that God reveals himself to us. I'd like for you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's all turn together. 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, 1 Kings chapter 19 precedes Elijah's great conquest over the prophets of Baal. Or, I'm sorry, it doesn't precede it. It it actually follows Elijah's great conquest over the prophets of Baal. Elijah has just defeated all these prophets, and the people have slaughtered the prophets. and, And Jezebel becomes very angry, and she promises to take her revenge upon Elijah. And Elijah flees into the wilderness. And feeling sorry for himself, Elijah is is pouting and he's telling God, I'm the only one that stands for you. And we know the story. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 19, we find the Lord himself speaking to Elijah in this matter. And let's begin looking at verse number 9, if you will. 1 Kings 19, getting at verse 9. We read, And he came thither unto a cave, and lodged there. And, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth. And stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, 
So Elijah stands there and this mighty, powerful wind comes and, and, and the wind is just blowing the rocks off the mountains and breaking everything around Elijah. But we read, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? You see, God wasn't in the great and mighty thunderings and powers. God was in the small voice. You see, the preaching of today across our nation has so elevated man that we too often have a higher opinion of ourselves than we should. And of course, since we are so important... There must be some great ceremony surrounding the revelation of God's will for our life. Now, this skewed opinion of God's will often causes believers to fail in finding God's will while they are looking for God's will. Subsequently, this is also the reason that many do not serve in the church because they have not received this great and mighty calling So they assume they have no responsibility to be a part of the work of God. And this indeed is a paradox. Now, it is important here that I stress that there are times when God will uniquely call men to serve him. uh, Such as in the calling of a pastor. Or in the the calling of, of deacons. But... To the average believer, the will of God is not a mystery. It is not hidden from us. It is, in fact, plainly revealed in God's word. The Apostle Paul clearly defined in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 the means to unravel the will of God. We read a few moments ago, and in that verse, in verse 1, he beseeches us, he pleads with us, To be a living sacrifice for God. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, we read, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are to be living sacrifices unto God. In fact, Paul said in, in, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 that it's our reasonable service. It's, it's, it's what's reasonable. It's what's expected of us. But then he admonished us to be transformed, to renew our mind, to, to change the way we think. To change the way we reason. And this transformed mind will allow us to see and understand the multiplicity of God's will for us. It will cause us to see God's will clearly. 
And this will, Paul states, has three considerations. The first thing he said is that it's good. All that God requires of you and I is good. God does not require anything of us that is not reasonable, that is not good. Even in trials and tribulations, God is good. God is always good to his children. Sometimes sometimes people will come to me and they've just received some tremendous blessing. And they'll tell me, oh, God is so good. God is so good. And I'll tell them, you know what? God is good even if you don't receive a blessing. God's goodness is not dependent upon what I get. God's goodness is an immutable fact. God is always good. And, and we should never have the opinion that God is only good when he's blessing us. But Paul not only says that the will of God is good, but he also says it is acceptable. The will of God is always such that it agrees with his righteousness. God will never, ever ask or expect us to do anything that does not agree with his righteousness. We've all heard the old saying, it's never right to do wrong in order to do right. And, and that's God's will. God does not expect us to do wrong to do right. Even, it, it is always such that best suits us. God's will is acceptable in the fact that it always is the best thing for us. It is always, without question, according to God's principles of holiness. God's will is always good. It is always acceptable. And thirdly, Paul said, it's perfect. He said that ye may prove that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The will of God is complete and entire. It is sufficient, containing all things that we need in our life. It requires nothing to be added. It furnishes the believer thoroughly unto every good work. Now God knows you and he knows what you need and he will give you what you need. And his will for you is always perfect. It's always sufficient. Nothing needs to be added to it. We need to learn to just be content and happy where we are and with what God has given us. And when we come to the realization, when we, when we, when we as Paul said, transform our thinking when we conform to the expectations of God, we will see, we will see the true will of God and we will live in accordance with that will. So now for tonight and and next Wednesday evening, I'd like to just delve into the many facets of the will of God for his children uh, as revealed to us through his inspired word. So tonight we'll begin by looking firstly at God's will concerning redemption. God's will concerning redemption. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 together. Let's all turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'll read beginning at verse number 1. We read here, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, 
that ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, we read here in verse 9, uh, the Lord, Peter said, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, this is one of the most debated scriptures in America tonight. It is used by those that will deny the sovereignty of God. The, these will teach that it is the will of God for all men, men to be saved, for every man to be saved. But is this true? Is that what Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 means? Is it God's will that all men, every man, be saved? We, we need to understand God's will concerning redemption. Now, let us reason about this for a moment. Isaiah said, come, let us reason together. So let's do that for a moment. Is God's will sovereign? Is God's will supreme? Can anything or anyone defeat God's will? Well, I don't think that it is. I don't think anything can defeat God's will, and I believe God's will is sovereign. And if it, if it can be, if his will can be defeated, then how can he remain God? He cannot remain God if someone or something can defeat him. Now first, let's consider the question of the sovereignty of God's will. Exactly what does it mean to be sovereign? Well, the definition of the word sovereign means supreme in power and authority. It means to be superior to all others. It means to be supremely efficacious, predominantly effectual. In other words, God's will supersedes any and all others. If it is God's will for something to be, then nothing can prevent it. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11, we read, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, 
and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So first, we can establish that God's will is sovereign. This means that anything that God wills shall come to pass. So, if it is God's will that all men, every man, repent, then every man will repent. For nothing can defeat the will of God. Nothing can stop his will. But not all men repent, do they? The majority of men, as a matter of fact, rebel and reject God and his word. The majority of men will spend eternity in hell. So does this mean that all of those men that reject God, does this mean that they defeated the will of God? Does anybody hear me? Did they defeat the will of God? They cannot. They cannot defeat God's will. Because if they can, then he's not God. If they could defeat the will of a sovereign God, he would cease to be a sovereign God. So then 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 cannot mean that it is God's will for every man to come to repentance. So what does it mean then? What is God's will if not for every man to be saved? What is his will concerning redemption if not for every man to be, to be saved? Well, if you carefully look at Second Peter and consider the context of, of his audience in these verses, you will see that, in fact, Peter is addressing God's people. He's not addressing an unsaved audience. He's not, he's not addressing and uh, he's not here offering uh, a, a gospel dispensation to unsaved people. Peter states in verse 1 that this epistle, verse 1 of chapter 3, that this epistle is being written to stir up their remembrance concerning what they were taught. So when we look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, we see that this epistle... Peter says, is written to the children of God, to the people of God. Now, what's going on? Well, there were scoffers in the church at that time. And these scoffers mocked the believer's faith that Christ would come again as he promised that he would for them. So here in, this passage, in these passages of Scripture, Peter is trying to reassure these believers concerning the rapture and the promise of the Lord to come and receive them. In this, Peter is is speaking to believers, elect children of of the Lord. And in verse 9, he is telling them that not one of them would be left behind. He is telling them that the sovereign will of God covers every believer, that not one of God's elect shall perish, but that every one of them that God has elected unto grace would repent and be redeemed. And this is the context 
of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. God's will concerning redemption is not that every man would be saved, but that every elect saint, those that God chose from the foundation of the world, that every elect child of God comes to repentance and to salvation. Now, you can try to twist that out of context all you want, and many do. But if that verse is intended to mean that God wants everyone to be saved, then God cannot be sovereign because most men are not saved. And God's will cannot be sovereign. And therefore, tonight, God's will is incomplete. Because if that, is, if that verse is, meant to, is intended to mean that every man, God's will that every man be saved, then God's will has no authority or power over men. Now, again, you can try to twist that all you want. But truth is truth. Amen? And God's word is truth. And we may not like it. But there it is. Like my grandfather used to tell me, deal with it, boy. Now, God's will concerning redemption is, is very clearly defined in Scripture. And I want to talk to you now. I want to, I want to look at the elements that comprise the aspect of his, of his will concerning redemption. First, number one, is the element of salvation. The element of salvation. Now let's look at Ephesians together, chapter 2. Let's go to Ephesians, chapter 2. And by the way, let me just mention, the vehemence and the hatred people have for the doctrines of grace, I I don't understand it. What, what, What are they fighting for? To preserve the right of man over the right of God? Boy, I tell you what, if you're fighting for that army, you're fighting for the wrong cause. It's all about God's glory, not ours. We, we don't deserve anything. Remember that. And by the way, God has not elected anyone to hell. All men are condemned to hell. Everybody is condemned to hell. So God hasn't chosen men to go to hell. We, we, we chose that for, that's the only thing we choose for ourselves by our, by our sinful nature. We choose hell. All men deserve hell and unless God chooses unless God elects some no man will be saved so let's let's make sure we're fighting for the right cause here I'm fighting for the for the cause of God's sovereign will not not for the right of man to choose now you made me lose my place Ephesians chapter 2 let's begin at verse 1 and beginning of verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or manner of life in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. 
For by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that faith that you had to be saved. I taught our, our, our group today in, in, in chapel. You are saved by faith, and that faith did not come from you. That faith was the gift, a gift of God. God measures unto men faith. And the faith that, that I had to, to receive Christ didn't come from within me. I, I didn't, it didn't come by me reasoning in my mind and weighing the value of Jesus. It came by the quickening power of the Holy Spirit, God enlightening me and giving me the faith to believe. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Salvation is a gift of God. God gave us the faith to believe. We didn't, we didn't reason ourselves. We didn't rationalize ourselves and, and, and choose God unto repentance. Salvation is a gift of God. It is a result of God's grace. Salvation cannot be earned. Not of works, Paul said, lest any man should boast. It cannot be purchased. In 1 Peter chapter 1 Verses 18 and 19, we read, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Salvation cannot be earned. It cannot be purchased. It is freely given to those whom God has chosen. And those he has chosen, he will enlighten to the truth of the gospel. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power. God enlightened us to the truth of the gospel. And God imparted to us the measure of faith to believe. It is the will of the Lord that his elect children be saved. But he has not left this to chance. It is by his direct acting upon us that we are enlightened and that we believe and that we exhibit faith to be saved. It is by his direct acting upon us. But not only the salvation of our soul. But also, the second element of God's plan of redemption is the element of sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we read, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you, by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Now here tonight we must clearly understand that this sanctification is both internal and external. 
We must also understand that this work, this internal work of sanctification is not of our own volition. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is he that quickens us, that made us alive. It is he that enlightened us, causes us to understand and believe spiritual truth. It is he that enables and empowers us to live holy lives. Without the indwelling Holy Spirit, without, without the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, you and I could never, ever live lives pleasing unto God. And all of this is the will of God for his children. And it is this that we were ordained to become. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10, we read it a moment ago, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God ordained that we would walk and live righteous lives. This is, this is why when a person is capable of living a life that is displeasing to the Lord, that person must look very deeply within himself. Because it is God's will that his children walk in, in, in righteousness. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, we read, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. All of these terms of Paul, I want you to notice, are in the past tense, not in the future tense. It didn't say whom he did predestinate, he will call. It didn't say whom he called, he will justify. And doesn't say whom he justified, he will glorify. You notice he said um, that he did these things. These were all done at the moment of our salvation. The moment of our salvation, we were called, we were justified. We, were, we, we are glorified in Christ Jesus the Son. Herein lies the evidence of our salvation. The truth that God's children will live as God's children. Because this is the predetermined will of God. And as we've already established tonight, or at least in my mind it's established, that God's will cannot be defeated. So let those who live in unrighteousness not deceive themselves, nor let them deceive you. So in God's will for redemption, we see the element of salvation. We see the element of sanctification. And lastly, we see the element of separation. Now I'd like for you to turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll begin reading at verse number 14. Second Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. We read here, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. 
As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, just a moment ago, I stated that the work of sanctification is both both internal and external. And the external aspect of sanctification is, is our separation. Now, our separation is a progressive work in progress. Um, It is a synergistic work. It's a cooperative work between the Holy Spirit and the believer. And this is illustrated in Peter's epistle uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 where Peter states, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This admonition to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts is not to be confused with the internal sanctification by Christ the Lord. For this is a work that is done apart from us. Rather, it is the outward working of the believer which is the result of the inward sanctification of Christ. We sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Now let me... Let me close tonight's message by giving you a few thoughts and we'll be done. How do we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts? Well, let me give you some thoughts. First, when we sincerely and fervently adore him. When we sincerely and fervently adore him. In John chapter 4 and verses 23 and 24 we read, But the hour cometh and now is. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is the spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We sincerely and fervently adore God in our, in our daily lives. How else do we sanctify the Lord in our hearts? Next, when our thoughts of him are reverent. Psalm 19 and verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I'm amazed at how glibly people will talk about God today. They refer to him as the old man upstairs or the big guy. No reverence. You know, when you use God's name, that is a very serious matter. And we have young, we have teenagers who, and young people who run around and, oh my God. And they, they, they evoke the name of God in vain. And the Bible is very clear about that. We need to reverence the name of God. And we need to teach our children that. We, we sanctify God in our hearts. How? Thirdly, when we rely upon his power. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We, we sanctify God in our hearts and in our lives when we rely upon his power. And, and I tell you, Sunday morning, I'm going to preach a message. I don't want to preach it tonight, so I'll be careful. But I want to preach a message entitled, They Knew Not God. You know, in, in Judges chapter 2, it says, And there arose another generation that knew not God. And you know what? We have a generation in America that's exactly there. We have a generation of people in our country that know not God. And it's time that we, as the grandparents and the parents of these young people, teach them to rely upon the power of the Lord by we relying upon that power ourselves. And stop trusting in all these things and depend upon and stand in the power of God. Rely upon his power. How do we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts next? When we trust in his faithfulness. When we trust in his faithfulness. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses, uh, or verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul said, I have no doubt in the faithfulness of God. I fully trust in God's faithfulness. I know that God is going to do exactly what he said he will do. How do we sanctify the Lord in our hearts? Next, when we submit to his wisdom. When we submit to his wisdom. You know, sometimes God's word is not going to say what we want it to say. Sometimes the wisdom of God is going to lead us in a direction we don't necessarily want to go. But we just need to learn to submit to his wisdom. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. How do we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts next? When we imitate his holiness. When we imitate his holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. You know who I, you know who I see our young people today imitating? The rock stars, the movie, the movie stars. These are the people they're shaping their lives after. They want to look like Mike. They want to dress like Mike. I want to be like Mike. But we should learn to imitate Christ and imitate his holiness. We need to learn to make choices in our life that mirror Christ. You know, the, 
the non-denominationists and the charismatics have this big thing. What would Jesus do? Well, I can tell them this much. Jesus wouldn't do an awful lot of the things they do. But in a manner of speaking, that's exactly right. We should do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do when men spit up on him and hated him and reviled him? He prayed for him. What did Jesus do when, when he was tempted to be a cheat and a liar? He, he, he looked at a coin and said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto God that which is God's. He was an honest man. He was a man of integrity. He was a compassionate man. He was a man who upheld the word of God. And that's what we should be. As God's children, we should imitate his holiness. Our separation is the will of God. It's God's will that all of us be separate. Not conforming to the world, not blending into the world. I'm so concerned. I'm so concerned tonight about our young people in this country. They're beginning to blend into the world to the point where there is no distinction between God's children and the devil's children. And I'm going to discuss this some Sunday morning about where the blame lies. Now, certainly the blame lies with them, but it needs to be shared. We're to, we're, uh, God's, our separation is the will of, will of God. And as I said, this, this is a work in progress which will not be completed until we stand in his presence. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 and 53, we read, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now in closing, I'll go back to Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul said, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will. It's not, a, it's not hidden from us. It's very plainly given to us in his word. And God's will concerning redemption is the foundation of all that we believe. And we must begin there. And we must have this right. We must understand God's will concerning redemption. And this truth concerning redemption is the motivation for you and I to be witnesses for Christ. You know, people say, ah, you know, people who believe like you, why bother so winning if you believe like you? Because if a man's elect, then he's going to be saved no matter what, right? Well, that's true. Because I can't defeat God's will, and my lack of soul winning is not going to prevent God from gathering his elect. But the truth that my message will fall upon ears that will receive it is, is a higher motivation for me to go. I told our teenagers today in chapel, you need, to, you need to give the gospel to every person that God brings into your life. So often I have people come up to me and say, well, I don't know who to visit. 
I don't know who to witness to. What about the cashier that checked you out at the grocery store? What about, what about the, 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 the attendant in, in the garage, in, in the gas station you stopped at to, to buy gas? What about the person sitting next to you on the bus? What about, what about the people you, you, you run into and meet? I believe that God brings people into our lives so that we can witness to them. And we need to learn to be witnesses for Christ. God's will for redemption is that the Great Commission, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But the important thing to remember is that God will save whom God will save. It's not for me to, I don't save people, I just witness. God does the saving and he'll save who he wants, who he chooses to save. Our job is not to determine who is God's elect. That's not our job. Our job is to preach to everyone. To give the gospel to everyone around us. You know one of the biggest burdens our pastor has right now? And, and this is our Wednesday night crowd. This is our foundational crowd. And, and pastor hasn't mentioned this from the pulpit. But pastor's biggest desire right now is that his people would become witnesses for Christ. And would go out and preach the gospel all over Ronan Park and Katati and Santa Rosa. Will you be a part of that? Will you be a part of going out with the gospel? Do you understand God's will for redemption? Do you understand and realize that there are people out there that God wants to save? And it is our job to go and preach. It's up to us. God's will concerning our redemption. Next week we're going to look at a few other things concerning the will of God. And certainly the, the, the study I'm going to do is not exhaustive. I'd, I'd probably have to spend a year studying all of the different facets of the will of God in every area of our lives. But we're going to concentrate on three major areas. And next week we'll look at the other two. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you reveal to us truth and that you help us to receive it and understand it. And Lord, I just ask tonight that you would empower each of us and that you would enable each of us, as as you already have, that we would go forth and be witnesses for you. I pray, Lord, that our people would, from this day forward, would look for those opportunities at every turn in their life to give the gospel to those that they meet. Complete strangers that they may never see again. Just hand them a track and tell them, I'm a Christian and I want you to know about Jesus. Lord, bless our church. Help us to be children that we should, that we must be. Help us to understand your will in this matter of redemption and to, to do our part, to do that which you've called us to do. Thank you for all that have come tonight. I pray that they would receive the message I've given in the spirit that it was given. And I pray that you would use it to your glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.